there's nothing more satisfying than knowing that when we elected Jenna Mills in 2018, we knew the next day 100,000 people would have access to health care that didn't the day before. In 2019, electing Andy Bashir and 150 people have their voting rights restored literally right away. And so there's nothing on the federal level that can compare with the experience of seeing the impact that the people that we are electing can have right away. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Noam Lee, is the outgoing executive director of the Democratic Governors Association, or DGA. The DGA is the party committee that supports the governor's races around the country, a large responsibility in this time of close political polarization and high-stakes elections. Noam describes how the DGA rose to the challenge under his leadership. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Noam Lee of the DGA. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, I'm Noam Lee, Executive Director of the Democratic Governors Association. I am actually wrapping up my 10th year at the DGA, fourth as Executive Director, but I was the National Finance Director for four years and came on in the 2013 cycle to run the individual donor program, but have been doing campaigns since I was in school in, in 2004 bounced around, landed with Harry Reid in 2010 on his reelect, spent some time at the DSCC before getting to the DGA. So range of campaigns experiences around the country, um, but I, I have now been here for a, a really great run over the past decade. What brought you into politics in the first place? So I was always interested. My dad was a rabbi, but always said that if he hadn't been, he would have wanted to go into politics. And so I grew up you know, very aware of the issues that were important in our community, the issues that were important in the world, really got that sort of civic mindedness and curiosity from my parents and their pursuits and priorities growing up. I always thought I would grow up and try to solve the Middle East conflict. But in college at Wash U in St. Louis, I had a professor run for Congress and I volunteered on that campaign in 2004. It was unsuccessful, but a really, really awesome race. Which professor? Jeff Smith. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's a bunch of people who got into that campaign. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The Jeff Smith alumni network is still going strong today. What was it about Jeff? He had a way of making issues come alive for college and making us all feel part of a bigger thing. This was all pre-Obama. It was when not a lot of people, the career center at WashU was, do you want to be a doctor or a lawyer? There wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of paths to get into to politics or even understanding what that meant. And Jeff kind of came along and said, hey, you guys can be part of this thing. We can make our city better. We can make our community better. 
and you can have a serious role to play as a, at that point, 19 year old kid. He was also a really just compelling communicator and he was a, a decade older than us, but still, I think he was 29 when he ran for Congress. And so seeing his command of issues, his ability to, to make a pitch and make a case and to, to bring us all along for the ride was, was inspiring. I just volunteered on the congressional campaign in, in 04, but then 06, I spent the whole summer on his state Senate race. That was a fantastic experience where I caught the campaign bug, really learned about the power of voter contact and those actual conversations mattering. And here's why I'm at your door talking about this candidate, especially in a nine-way primary in a state Senate race, being so fundamentally different from kind of what we think about these big Senate and gubernatorial and presidential races. So learned a lot from that experience and never looked back. It's a little like Paul Wellson, but he had that uh, very unfortunate, uh, Jeff did, that uh, felony conviction coming out of campaign finance stuff. That'll warn you if you have a career in political finance about what to be careful about, right? He did. There was a, an issue around a, a disclaimer on a, a campaign postcard in 2004. Yes, of course, everyone involved with him learned learned a ton. I'm still good friends with Jeff to this day, still really do look up to him and think highly of him. I think he came out of that experience and fought for more funding and opportunities and resources for formerly incarcerated people coming out and trying to build a better li life for themselves and is working on affordable housing issues in St. Louis. So the things that drew me to, to him and, and that campaign in those years, I think even given what happened in that stretch in between, I'm glad that he came out of that and is doing what he's doing. So it's a good story of, of what is still possible. Yeah. Tell me about sort of your path to Harry Reid. How did you go from college student and doing some campaigns to that operation? In this space, in campaigns, we all wish there was an obvious path. You, uh, you work on this campaign, you do this internship, and then you get that job. I think for me and for a lot of, of my sort of peers coming through this, this space in that time, it's a lot of zigs and zags. I was raising money on a campaign in Florida left in April of 2010 and just got a phone call out of the blue. Hey, do you want to interview to work for Harry Reid's reelection? Of course. And had a, a great conversation with his team, learned a ton from that experience. I absolutely loved working for Harry Reid. He kind of has a famous political operation. What did you pick up there? What did you see? Yeah, you know, I got to work around some of the most talented people in the business at 24 years old. I also got to learn from a principal who was the Senate Majority Leader at the, the absolute top of his game, but treated everyone like they belonged in the rooms that they were in, treated everybody with kindness and respect. He was strong and you better be on your game or, or you'll hear about it. But I think he had a genuine appreciation for the people that were committed to him and committed to public service and by his side. I felt that as a kid working in his operation. You're not better than anyone. No one's better than you those lessons early in your career in a field that where uh, you know, egos are not, uh, egos are, are a regular thing. I think working for someone who is so accomplished and so strong and so capable, but had so much humility really resonated with me and taught me a lot early in my career. It's also just so interesting because it shows you how you don't have to be necessarily a big asshole to rise up high. You know? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, at truly at the top of his profession, at the top of his game, the fact that he could 
always treat people with respect. Again, I think is a lesson that that I took. And I think, you know, you see the network of Reed alumni, many of whom I don't even know. And I run into people, oh, I work for Harry Reed too. And you just have that instant, having the opportunity to learn from him in that way was was really valuable personally and professionally. Was that the connection that pulled you to the DS? It was, yes. Coming off the 2010 re-election, I, I wanted to continue working with and around Harry Reid, had the opportunity to, to keep raising money in the, the Southeast for the DSCC and a what was shaping up to be a, a challenging cycle. I was excited about the challenge, especially working in some states that are out of the spotlight for the party, certainly for that Senate caucus at that time. And it was a, a very good and interesting experience. You started out with a lot of field type stuff, and then you moved into the sort of finance fundraising. What do you like about each and how do you compare those sort of political jobs? I have found them to be similar in some ways. You're asking people for the resource that they have to contribute. You know, when I was a field organizer, I was asking people for their time. I was asking people for their energy, you know, folks who were, were willing to come in and make phone calls, knock on doors. The folks I found myself talking to when I was starting out in fundraising, they were not going to do that, but they were willing to write a check. And that's the way that they were going to participate. And that's the way that they were going to make a difference. And so for me, you know, I, I get this question a lot of like, is it hard to ask for money? The reality is I'm asking for a resource that people are willing to contribute to achieve the ends that they're trying to achieve. And so being able to, to be the conduit for them to make the difference they're trying to make in a campaign, I thought there were a lot of similarities. I mentioned in sort of the zigging and zagging in, in one's career in campaigns, I worked on a lieutenant governor's race in Virginia in 2009. The campaign manager, uh, who was then my predecessor as executive director of the DGA, Elizabeth Pearson, called me a couple days in and said, hey, I know we hired you to do some constituency group work and, and sort of whatever needs to be done on the political side, but actually uh, we need a fundraiser. So you're a fundraiser now, was basically how that went. And you know, I did it for a decade. So it, it was not something I had planned, not something I'd ever thought about, but so much of the excitement and opportunity in campaigns is being there at the moment that those opportunities present themselves. And if you jump at them and excel in them, whole new worlds and whole new doors open. And I was able to work for somebody who was willing to put me in a different lane or broaden the scope of what I was able to take on. And, and then I was thrilled to be able to jump at that opportunity and build what was then 10 years of, of fundraising. I mean, the DS, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, is like a D.C. organization that is concerned with people who have jobs in D.C., a party committee. And the DGA, it's a little different because the jobs are in every state, even though it's a centralized political committee affecting the governor's races. How would you compare working for one versus the other? They are incredibly different. Governors are where my heart is, truly. Looking back at particularly at this moment after an election cycle like this, but really these are high turnover jobs in a high turnover space. And I've been here for 10 years because I believe there is nowhere else in politics that electing a single individual can have that much direct impact on people's lives. And that was something that I found coming into the DGA, even in my first role here many years ago, I felt like every race we won meant things were going to be different for people. Every race we lost meant things were going to be different for people. But we were really at that critical inflection point. And as somebody doing this work, 
there's nothing more satisfying than knowing that when we elect to Jenna Mills in 2018, we knew the next day 100,000 people would have access to health care that didn't the day before. You know, in 2019, electing Andy Bashir and 150 people have their voting rights restored literally right away. And so there's nothing on the federal level that can compare with the experience of seeing the impact that the people that we are electing can have right away. That's one of the biggest differences. As a practitioner, the races are so different. The states are different. The dynamics are different. We can win in Louisiana, Kentucky, and Kansas, but we have Republican governors in Vermont and New Hampshire. So these races are so much more localized. Voters see the job of governor as different from the job of going to Washington to vote for or against a leader and a president's agenda. And so really having a pulse on what is going to move the needle in those individual races, how to talk about those states, how to create a brand around what you're delivering that insulates from the national environment. We said, especially coming into this this year, our races are not always immune from national politics, but they are certainly not determined by them in a way that that federal races can be. So being part of that has been very exciting and is a huge difference from the federal level. Can you just talk about your trajectory within DGA? How did you first land there? What was the story? I love it when somebody starts lower in an organization, learns the organization, grows in their role and responsibilities, ends up running it. I think there's something really healthy for an organization when they're able to do that, as long as the person ends up being a good leader. Tell me about your path and how that went for you. I'm biased, but certainly agree that the growth opportunity for me as a, as a, a leader and a professional being in this organization has been incredible. And I, I, I really do love it here. When I left the DSCC, I had a conversation with the finance director here at the DGA who said, we basically have no individual donor fundraising program at the DGA, brought me on and really invested in me to start that, to try and get a federally focused party and donors who are focused on the presidency and the Senate to look at governors as leaders that are worth investing in, as places where real policy gets made and rubber hits the road in a meaningful way, and as as people that can be national stars and national leaders in a way that I think governors should be. So I spent the first two years building that program and then was able to become the finance director and take on the rest of, of the fundraising apparatus at the DGA, which we were able to expand significantly. But jumping from that into the role as executive director, I thought I brought my experience understanding how we raise money, but also the limits on what we were able to do without building our organization and making sure that we are communicating from the day after governors are elected, we're your team for the reelect. We're building now. We're all in. And we can start thinking about your election while you focus on running an effective government, finding ways for the DGA to be a more full service and effective partner to governors as they govern, not just down the stretch in their campaigns, bringing more of them into the tent so that every Democratic governor is involved in the DGA and every Democratic governor is helping to raise money for the DGA, which in turn allowed us to have the resources that we were able to deploy in 2022 having that perspective of being here through those leaner times where we had 15 Democratic governors, we'd see five, six, seven consistently governors at events and involved in the program, I think really informed my approach toward building the operation with a, an eye toward bringing everybody in and making it 
a place where we helped governors do anything that they are trying to do better. And we could be a resource across the spectrum. And on the political side, being able to build out our digital program, being able to build out our research program, anything that's happening in the state, there's somebody on our team who can be a resource, a sounding board and contribute to those efforts. And I think it it grew our reach and capacity in, in really meaningful ways this year. Can you be concrete about like over the 10 years, over the decade, how much is the staff bigger? How much is the budget bigger? What kinds of things are you now doing well that you weren't able to do at all or not do well? Like just how is how is this organization grown and matured? So in 2022, we spent $178 million directly on campaigns. That number was $66 million in 2018. So just since 2018, it was almost 3x the spending directly on campaigns. We have a staff of 60 now. It was about 25 when I joined. And a big part of that is building the research operation here at the DGA where we're able to produce a lot of this in-house, which saves money and gets us a better product. So we start researching every potential opponent that we see popping up on the horizon against our Democratic candidates years before they're on the ballot. And we've been able to do so much of that work in-house, streamline it, save money. Our digital program was was three staff people at the end of the 2018 cycle. We now have, I believe, 14 people on our digital team. And it's not just about the increased capacity Bringing all of that in-house, once again, it saves a considerable amount of money we're not spending on outside consultants. We'll raise about $45 million online this cycle compared to $11 million in the 2018 cycle. And we also have a full in-house content team that didn't exist at all before this cycle. So we were producing digital content for campaigns across the country, microsites, their DGA social media, um, TikTok, which admittedly I'm not a, a connoisseur of, but the DGA TikTok account has been doing great. I mean, everything that we need to be a modern campaign committee and to make sure that our campaigns and governors have the tools to excel in 2022, we've been able to build and grow here within our operation. So ultimately, we will have ended up raising about $400 million over the course of the four-year cycle, which is more than double what we saw in past cycles. So the growth has been tremendous. But also, we talk a lot about the way we deploy the resources. 88 cents on every dollar that comes into the DGA goes directly to campaigns, which is something that we are laser focused on and and care deeply about. We see ourselves as stewards of our donors' money and uh, the folks that invest in us. Um, And so making sure that a lot of that growth has been in the service of efficiency and making sure that every dollar is spent in the most effective way possible. Whenever I hear those kind of statistic. It's very helpful, I think, when you see, okay, this is what it was, you know, this number of years ago, this is what it is now. Could you also compare that to whatever degree you have the information at your fingertips with the Republican side? Are they also experiencing similar growth? Did they start at a higher point? How are we competing in our governor's party committee with the other side? So we flipped the script in 2022 in a meaningful way on that. We were able to outspend and outcommunicate Republicans in every single competitive governor's race overall from the beginning of the campaign to the end and in those critical weeks down the stretch. We used to be at about a two to one disadvantage. When I got to the DGA, that's about where we were. That's about what we were looking at. 
we were able to fight it to about a one and a quarter to one disadvantage. And because we spend efficiently and effectively, we were able to hold our own in that environment. But this is really the first cycle where we have significantly outraised and outspent the RGA and Republican candidates overall. So that spending was huge. It allowed us to define our candidates, define their candidates early. You know, Laura Kelly went on television in Kansas in April and never came down. And she was able to talk about her success as governor, what she was delivering for families in Kansas and inoculate herself against some of the attacks that came later from the Republicans. They knew that that's not who Laura Kelly was. They knew who she was and what she had delivered for them. And we were able to do that early and consistently. And in some of the races where there was a late onslaught of money, also, we were able to withstand that. In Arizona, we were able to out-communicate the RGA and Kerry Lake, even in, in one of the most competitive races in the country. And we were able to do that because we've been able to raise unprecedented resources in a way that overcame and overtook what, what Republicans are being able to do. And again, that we were able to deploy them efficiently and effectively. We talked about a whole range of issues. You know, There was a lot of conversation about, should we talk about abortion or should we talk about the economy? I mean, the answer is, these are complex decisions made by real people. So the answer is both. Choice mattered in this race. We talked a lot about it in our campaigns, but we spent more money talking about issues that weren't abortion than we spent talking about abortion. And so we communicated on inflation and the economy. Gretchen Whitmer did it incredibly effectively in Michigan, said, I understand what you're going through. Here's what I'm doing to make it a little bit easier. Laura Kelly axing the food tax in Kansas, rebates that Janet Mills gave to folks in Maine, talking about those economic issues while also keeping the heat on Republicans for their extremist views on abortion and on our elections and really making it a a stark contrast and a choice between progress, but also policy prescriptions for the future and bomb throwing and extremism on the other side without any articulation of a vision or ideas or goals or anything that they were going to do to make lives better for the people of Wisconsin, for the people of Arizona. And so the contrasts were clear, but having the resources to highlight them in a meaningful way really was a different situation we found ourselves in in 2022. How do you explain that increased success fundraising that has been so crucial. Is that because Democratic donors are more engaged in themselves because of the stakes that have been raised in the polarization of our politics? Is that because you guys have worked on the tactics and the strategy of fundraising and, in, and improved how you do things? Is it because of collaboration with other party committees and working on lists? What goes into this change that you're highlighting? All of the above, truthfully. The stakes of these races for governor have never been more clear. And we've always tried to communicate that. But post Dobbs, when the right to reproductive care actually depends on the governor of your state, that drove it home. Seeing what happened in the 2020 election and seeing that the path to 270 electoral votes runs through states with Democratic governors, making sure that we have free and fair elections in those states and that we're not going to have folks actively trying to subvert democracy in those seats was a huge motivator. I think we saw a lot of donors who would traditionally be more federally focused between defending the mechanisms of voting in democracy, defending reproductive freedom, and generally investing in some exciting candidates that gave them 
ideas and people to be for. It was a great combination and a great moment for that. I think Americans all over the country saw their governors in a different way during COVID also. We saw our governors have an opportunity to speak to their constituents every single day to lead them. We saw different health outcomes in states with Democratic governors during those darkest days of the pandemic when governors were willing to follow science, keep people safe, and communicate openly and honestly. So circumstances of these last few years have really put governors in the spotlight, and they have unsurprisingly risen to the moment in a way that shouldn't be surprising to anybody who works with Democratic governors. That and we've been building this program here at the DGA for an incredibly long time. So we had the infrastructure and the mechanisms ready to harness that enthusiasm. It really is all of the above. There's a lot of people I talked to over the course of the cycle who were focused on 2024 and they were worried about what would happen in the states that would affect the 2024 electoral vote, right? and the voting rules. So they were focused on the state legislatures and the secretaries of states and the attorney generals and the governors. How much of that effort that's coming out of the progressive ecosystem very broadly, does that drive to you? Do people send money to you because of that? Because there's a lot of separate things that are funding money either independently or whatever. Like how much is this a team effort? What happened with your fundraising? How much is it something that was within the DGA? There was a, a lot more collaboration among organizations this cycle than I've ever seen in my time doing this. The donor enthusiasm around protecting those seats that were going to have an impact on the 2024 races drove a lot of donors. And those donors were interested in, in the governor, in their secretary of state, in their attorney general, a lot of collaboration between us and other state level committees, more collaboration between us and the other federal committees. And the truth is it was just more of everything at the right moment. And the fact that there were Republicans running in a lot of those presidential battleground states that do not recognize Joe Biden as the legitimately elected president of the United States and it's not just that they are denying that the 2020 election, they're not just 2020 election deniers. They were proactively talking about their efforts to subvert future elections. I mean, Tim Michaels said a, Repu a Republican would never lose again in Wisconsin if he was elected governor. And Doug Mastriano said that he would be able to decertify voting machines. And so these are people that were not just saying Trump won in 2020, but that whatever the voters said, they were going to make sure that Republicans held those seats and got those electoral votes in 2024. So the stakes were, were high and they were clear uh, in a way that, that galvanized a lot of people. I know that in some races, um, there were Democratic efforts to help the more extreme candidate get the nomination. It's playing with fire because if they do win, then you end up with a Mastriano in a crucial position. But in most cases, I think that in this particular election that worked out, what is your theory around how you decide campaigns, what to do in situations like that in the other primary? Well, I'm glad you asked because there, there's a ton of bad information out there about the way that Democrats engaged in these races. The truth is that there was an extremism running through the Republican primary. You know, re Donald Trump's endorsed candidates won nearly every, Trump endorsed candidate won nearly every gubernatorial primary across the country. And these were people espousing incredibly extreme views. We decided to start the general election early. You know, we knew that, we knew that 
the Republican primary electorate was looking for that. And we knew that we were looking at the same data everybody else is. We knew we were going to be running against these people in the general election. We wanted to define them, call them out on their extremism, communicate with a general election message right off the bat and attack them for being so extreme because we also saw a lot of them try to pivot in the general election to to try to tone down some of their more extreme positions. But we were able to hold them to what they were saying in those primaries. We were able to define them early and we were able to be successful. You know, there's we never gave money to Republican candidates. We never promoted Republican candidates. What we did was attack them for their for the extremist messages and extremist positions that they were espousing and running on. The other major piece of this is the fallacy that there was a moderate alternative in a lot of these places. Lou Barletta, who was the second place finisher in Pennsylvania behind Doug Mastriano, was a fake elector in the Trump scheme to overturn the 2020 election. So this is, we had candidates across the country, you know, Doug Mastriano, Kerry Lake were the most obvious and most extreme, uh, but we had candidates across the country who either either overtly expressed some of the most extreme views of the MAGA Republican crowd, or at least played footsie with it, or at least didn't condemn it, didn't deny it. Was a 2020 election valid? And is Joe Biden the president of the United States? Well, I'm not, you know, they would they would sort of dip, bob and weave and they wouldn't outright say the election was stolen, but they were they were giving quarter to the people who who were saying that. And so it is important to call out that band line of extremism running through the party. We were able to do that in places that allowed us to deploy resources early and in some cases save resources later because we were able to open up big leads in a state like Maryland. I know you, you guys work with some folks in analytics and trying to get a sense of uh, how well we'll do in states, kind of make predictions before the fact, help you decide how to target resources and things like that. How well did that work? Maybe you could use the lens of what were the two closest races that we won and the two closest races that we lost and how you were thinking about them before the results were in and how you were spending or not spending in those races? So what decisions we make with the data we have is one of the fundamental questions that our team wrestles with constantly. You know, to me, it was important that we have as much information as possible, but we also recognize that the polling is a, a snapshot of a moment in time. The modeling is is based on a prediction of what the electorate is going to look like. So these are all important and valuable tools. One of the things that helped us do and, and kind of confirmed what we were seeing, the modeling confirmed what the polling was showing, that we had kind of tiers of states. We had the states in which we were tied, the states in which we were a little bit ahead, but we knew that in a bad environment, in a bad year, we could definitely lose and we're very nervous. And then the states that were sort of a little safer, but you can never take your foot off the gas anywhere, particularly in the political environment that it appeared we might be in coming into 2022. I look at the closest race we won in Arizona, the closest race we lost, which was in Nevada. Those are so razor's edge from a resource allocation perspective. If we've got a chance to win, we're going to go all in. You know, my philosophy has always been we're all in or we're not in at all. And, uh, and so we, unfortunately, that means we have to sometimes make difficult decisions to not spend in races where we just don't see a path. And if a race falls off the map, we need to be willing to stop spending. Fortunately, in this case, we did not have to make a lot of those tough decisions, A, because 
We had the resources to fully fund these campaign plans. And we also had candidates run really, really strong campaigns before November, where it looked like we might be in a historic, historically, the party in the White House has lost a net six seats, governor, six governorships in the party's first midterm. So, you know, our goal was to beat history and lose fewer seats than that. And so when we were looking at that environment, you know, anywhere where we had a chance to win, we were going to go all in. What surprised you the most out of the 2022 results? There were definitely some margins that were were bigger than we expected. And what it means for those states, you know, you look at Michigan, you look at at Minnesota, places where there were meaningful shifts in the legislative bodies, not just the governor reelected. You know, governor Whitmer and Governor Walls are going to get some real things done in those states that even as governor, they were not going to be able to do without a Democratic legislature behind them. And so the extent and the the size of the wins in some of these states was more than I expected. What do you think is the biggest misconception out there about governor's races? I think there's a few. I think that they are just along for the ride with the national environment. We saw a lot of that in the the kind of predictions before election day and, and sort of not understanding the unique nature of governor's races and the ability to localize them and, and, again, win in Kansas, but not compete seriously in Vermont. That is definitely something that is still sort of not fully understood. And I think just more than a misconception, even with the growth, even with the attention that's been focused on governor's races in the 2022 cycle, you know, they say, ask me what my priorities are, look at my budget. You know, you see the spending in federal races relative to governor's races even though we had unprecedented resources in 2022, I still believe that for a, a large section of the party, state level races, not just gubernatorial races, are an afterthought. And while we're improving that, um, that's going to continue to be a challenge. We're going into a presidential cycle that's going to be critically important for our country in any number of ways. We need to fight to hold the Senate again and to take back the House. But making sure that these state level races are not seen as an afterthought, they're not seen as a tier below federal races. These are critical opportunities to impact people's lives and impact our party. Democratic governors have shown that they have the the formula to win in, in tough battleground states, you know, double-digit wins in places like Michigan, and being able to look at Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and see that blueprint going into a cycle like this is all the more reason we should be looking at these races as, as the model for, for how to run. I assume that one of the things that you have to do is manage this operation, to run it as the executive director. What were the biggest challenges in growing it with staff and managing them so that they're most effective in meeting the goals that you're setting forth? So the team that we have put together at the DGA has been really the story of the cycle and the joy of the cycle for me, um, getting to to work with the professionals that we have here in this operation every day, they're people who understood that governors weren't at the center of the universe and, and not always in the heat of the national spotlight and chose this fight for them for themselves in this moment. Anyway, the caliber of the team we put together amazed me throughout the cycle. COVID threw us for a loop. I mean, it threw everyone for a loop, but it was an incredible as a manager, an incredible challenge of how to move an operation where everyone was in an office together five days a week. We were obviously remote throughout the the sort of 
darkest days of the pandemic and then have come back in a hybrid capacity, maintaining the culture, maintaining the relationships, making sure that we can be here for the people that work at the DGA as people and not just as professionals, because we all went through things during that time. I think anyone managing people during this pandemic experienced a lot of those same challenges, but how to continue functioning at a high level and building and expanding, onboarding new people virtually in an organization that had never used Zoom before. There were so many of these little things that took huge adjustments. And then the process of moving back into in-person. What are the rules? What are the processes? What is our risk tolerance? That was one of the most challenging pieces of, of managing a, a 60-person operation. I'm, I'm grateful for the patience and grace that our team showed me and, and the rest of our leadership team in navigating that, but it was, it was tough. I bet it was. Is it hard to integrate what you do with the campaigns in the States? Campaigns think of themselves as the real operation, right? Typically they have a campaign manager, they have a candidate, it's in their state. They don't necessarily always look on party committees as the source of all wisdom. How did you sort out that relationship with the campaigns that you're working for? It was really approaching them early with humility and resources. We're here to help from day one. Uh, we traveled, uh, a number of folks on, on our team traveled to state capitals in Q1 of 2019 to talk to the governors that would be reelected in 2022 and said, we're your people. We're here to be on your team. Our political team was on their calls for four years in many cases. We were able to provide resources. You know, during the pandemic, we became the nexus of a lot of the information that was coming into states and between states on how they were responding to COVID. So they were able to see us delivering more for them than just campaign cash at the end of the day. We wanted to make ourselves trusted advisors. We've never shown up with the attitude of, of we're here from D.C. and we know best. Our attitude is always we have experience and resources and a national perspective and no agenda other than winning that we can offer. And so we want to be part of the team. We want to be part of the conversations. We were able to become the trusted strategic partners that let us contribute and helped make for a better operation here at the DGA and for more effective campaigns because it wasn't adversarial. It, at times, of course, there are spirited exchanges of ideas like anywhere, but from a place of, of trust and respect. And that was something that that I and uh, my senior team felt very, very strongly about. If we were going to have a chance at accomplishing the task at hand in 2022, we need to, to be hand in glove partners with all of our incumbent governors up for re-election and, and with our candidates. You know, we, the DGA doesn't endorse in primaries, but during primaries, we try to make sure we develop meaningful relationships with every campaign because many of them come out of those primary campaigns broke. They come out of those primary campaigns in a situation not able to turn up the heat on the Republican immediately. And so we need to play that role. And we were able to flip a switch and already be ready to go with those teams and not start from scratch. So whether it was the incumbents or the, the candidates post-primary, there isn't a state across the country where I could tell you we're not happy with, proud of the relationship that we had with the teams on the ground, having respect for their local knowledge, their the fact that they're on the ground. There's a, a lot that goes into that, but we're proud of we're proud of where we landed. I mean, places like Kansas, notwithstanding, there still are states where it's been a while since we've had a competitive governor's race. 
do you have any thoughts about what it takes to turn states like that around on a state level that are red, maybe deep red? Is there an equivalent to the notion of a 50 state strategy on the governor's level? So like most things in our world, it's different in every state and all of the above. You know, I think we have, you know, you look at Arizona, where which hadn't had a Democratic governor in more than a decade, um, but Katie Hobbs ran a great operation and worked with a strong Senate campaign, a strong coordinated campaign that had a lot of funding. And so we were able to work with partners in a, in a really meaningful way there in a place where there hadn't been a, a Democratic governor a long time. In redder states, the situation is different every year. I mean, Laura Kelly just, again, put together an incredible operation for her campaign. We always want to build for the future. And we know that that as governor, she can continue to put pieces in place to create more electoral success for the party. And, and she definitely did that. There's no comprehensive, here's our plan for, for America. We look at the map, what's coming and we we try to take a, a laser focus on what are we going to need to be successful again in North Carolina in 2024? What do we need to do this coming year to make sure we can replicate our success in Kentucky? And so much of it is also candidate and campaign driven. I think one of the things that 2022 showed us is that candidates and campaigns still really matter. We go into 2023 where Andy Bashir will be up for re-election. Governor Bashir's approval rating is sky high. It's in, It's been in the 60s. He shows up everywhere. He talks about issues that aren't Democratic or Republican issues. They're issues facing families and communicating that with empathy and a vision is, and communicating it everywhere, not just in Louisville and Lexington, has put him in a strong position to be to be reelected. And that's really the, the through line. You mentioned a bunch of times your research operation and some of that's like the opposition research. Did you come up with anything that you thought made a substantial difference that you could highlight? From an operational standpoint, every single candidate for governor in our party had a research director that was trained by the DGA. So I think the the level of talent that was on the ground, our research director, Heather Owens here, hired a ton of people at the beginning of the cycle, trained them up and got them placed on races. And so the impact of, of that training and that effort was felt everywhere. We did not have a single television ad taken down across the country. Our research department was able to vet everything across the board. A lot of the things we look at the attack on, on Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, of course, came from, from the research. It is a pretty comprehensive look at who we're running against, their record, their business, and things that they've said, positions they've taken. One of the other things that was very powerful as far as what we've, we've tracked and been able to, to compile, Republicans saying a lot of these things in their own words was powerful. I mean, Tudor Dixon talking about abortion was so much more powerful than anything we could have said about Tudor Dixon. And it also, in a state like Michigan, where abortion was literally on the ballot, it makes the threat real. And so in so many places where we had footage of Republicans in their own words saying extreme things, being able to deploy that in campaigns and seeing people direct to camera, I think is, is one of the most impactful things that, that we saw in these, in these races. It's interesting that there, that the way that that party has gone off the rails is sometimes useful to us, even though it's so dangerous to the country, sometimes it does have political consequences. 
I wish it wasn't like that. I, you know, these are scary conversations to be having. I wish that that wasn't the case. That being the case, it is so important for us to be able to expose what some of these candidates believe and will do and being able to highlight, again, them saying it in their own words is powerful. And, you know, we see this dynamic where in focus groups or in polling, we will tell, we will say, uh, you know, so-and-so said this thing that sounds crazy. And they'll say, uh, no way. That must have been taken out of context. That must, there's no way someone actually said that or actually believes that. And so there, there is a believability threshold that even some of these things that, that some of these Republican candidates have said, you know, we can't just say, Carrie Lake said this because they won't necessarily believe us unless we have them saying it in their own words. So at the risk of belaboring the point, I can't stress enough how powerful it is when we're talking about somebody saying they're going to decertify voting machines if they don't get the result they want. It sounds so off the rails that that they're not going to believe it if we just say they said it. Does it alarm you that someone could say those things, like say, take care, Carrie Lake, that she could say some of the things that she said and lose by so little? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. The fact that some of these candidates, I mean, Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake got uh, lost by half of less than 1%. And some of these other candidates, you know, they, they still got millions and millions of votes, of course. I mean, the, the conversation's not over. The need to combat that extremism with real alternatives, real solutions, with candidates who communicate that they understand what folks are going through. Here's what they're going to do to make life a little better, that they're on their side, and that they don't need to turn to this hateful rhetoric and this extremism to as an answer to those challenges, that's an ongoing problem. It's going to be here in 2023 and 2024. It will probably be here long beyond that. It won't get less important. It's disheartening that that's the case, but you know, it's one of the things that's so motivating to me, to the folks at the DGA, to the governors who were elected, is, is, is that there's a better way and that people that's not necess- that's not what people are looking for. And and Democratic governors and candidates in 2022 offered an alternative and voters in many states across the country chose that alternative. Are you in for another cycle? I'm not. I will be calling it a decade. Megan Meehan Draper, our national finance director this year, will become our executive director in January. We announced that at our annual meeting a week and a half ago. I'm thrilled for her. She's a, an incredibly talented leader, um, is going to take the DGA even further. I have no doubt. I'm excited to see what she does in the role. Just thrilled for her and thrilled for the DGA. That's where we're headed. What are you off to do? I'm still figuring that out. Excited to <laughs> excited to share some more news soon. If you were giving advice to Megan or to other incoming or I guess continuing heads of national party committees, what would you suggest are the ways that we can keep getting better as a party as we go forward? I think the partnerships with our stakeholders matter tremendously. It should go without saying, but I'm saying it because we've lived it. Being a real trusted seat at the table, a real resource, and being able to find ways to add value, even in races that aren't competitive, but being a, a source of, of, of help and a thought partner, that was an incredibly valuable piece of what we were able to build here at the DGA this cycle. Engaging 
external stakeholders and partners more broadly is something we really tried to do, did successfully. When you're talking about external stakeholders and partners, who are you thinking about? We had a great relationship with the White House this cycle. A lot of the legislation the Biden administration was able to pass helped us talk about Democrats delivering in states. And so, you know, we're grateful for their partnership and their help and their dialogue. We talked about collaborating with other Democratic committees and organizations, funders across the progressive ecosystem. You know, I think we had a much bigger, you know, a, a lot more seats at the table than we've, we've had, have had in the past. And that was helpful. My advice is also to continue, you know, I will say that that um, the DGA does not need the DGA is in amazing hands moving forward. I have no no concern about the direction it's headed whatsoever. I, I just think you know continuing to build and continuing to tell the story of Democratic governors as leaders, what they can do and have done, why that matters in our party, and why these voices are important. I think that's going to be critical as we head in straight into another tough election cycle. This blueprint can be applied and, and replicated. And, and I think there's a real opportunity to, to continue holding up Democratic governors as an example of good policy and good politics. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't think so. We covered a lot of ground. I'm uh, definitely proud of our wins and you know, going plus two, netting two seats in a cycle like this is, is something our whole team is incredibly proud of. 57% of Americans are going to have a Democratic governor after this round of inaugurations next month. And back to, to where we started, the, the impact on people's day-to-day -day lives is tremendous. And so it's something we're very proud of. Is there any of these new governors or reelected governors that you think is someone we should watch in potential national office? We have a ton of stars in this party that come from this caucus of Democratic governors. We elected a historic class of new governors that are going to make a huge mark on their state and are going to be leaders in our party for, for years and cycles to come. I'm excited to see where Democratic governors as a whole and so many of them individually where they go in, in the years ahead. It will be exciting to watch as more and more attention is, is focused on Democratic governors over the next few elections. The folks that don't already know them are going to be thrilled with, uh, with what they see and, and what they learn. I appreciate your time today. Anything else you want to say? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been, been very nice talking with you. That was Noam Lee. He is at democraticgovernors.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.